I did that Beyonce lemon juice and cayenne pepper thing once, and I, and I was like, do you know what? I was actually I was like I was on some sort of amphetamine. I was so hyper because I was obviously living exclusively off adrenaline. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well podcast with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin, and brought to you by the not-for-profit mental health organization, The Be Well Collective. This podcast aims to bring you nutritional insight and mental health awareness through people's own personal journeys and health professionals' evidence-based advice to guide you on your own journey. Imposter syndrome. This is a topic that many people I feel suffer with and it's something that I've come across a lot working in clinic or also within our not-for-profit organization the BY Collective. It's when you don't deserve to feel that you've had success. It's that you're worried that people might find out that you're a fraud and have somehow conjured up this career without deserving to be in it. And this can affect anyone is estimated to affect up to 70% of people at some point in their lives. And it can be linked to feelings of self-doubt, such as fear of success, fear of failure, or self-sabotage. In this episode, I speak to British fashion designer, Henry Holland. On his fantastic 13 years of success, the whirlwind journey that he encountered, how he looked after his mental health, what the views in the fashion industry are with mental health, and also how himself suffered with the feelings of imposter syndrome and burnout. Hi Henry, welcome to Live Well, Be Well. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. It sounds like you've had a a really busy morning. From what? From what, from what <laughs> yeah, I, I have. Yeah, I've had a, a situation involving my French bulldog and a steaming mound of fox poo, but um, I've managed really to. Yeah, I've managed to fix that. It's all very glamorous. Yeah. So. <laughs> How have you been? I mean, I can't remember the last time I actually saw you. This is obviously not been this year, but how have you been, kind of, throughout the last twelve months? Yeah, I've been good. I mean, it's there. It's been a real roller coaster, which mm-hmm. I don't think is kind of, um, you know, unusual for anyone at the moment. I think it's such. Uh, I mean, there's no other word for it, really, is it? Just such a roller coaster of emotions mm-hmm. and trying to navigate our way through these like seismic changes in the world, and especially you know in the fashion industry as well. And I mean, in all industries, but. Um, I pers- I'm i a big fan of change and so I think you know you have to look at the positives and everything mm-hmm. um, and I think you know this whole kind of control alt delete that the world has been forced into is kind of giving everybody a chance to take stock and think about what we're doing it how we're doing it and why we're doing it yeah. and you know the pace of so many industries and the fashion industry in particular doesn't allow for those moments of pause and reflection and I think that with having this one forced upon us, uh, I really hope it affects some, you know, actual real-time change for the industry as a whole and for the better. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you feel like 
do you feel that you were kind of on that like I want to say like hamster wheel like never really stopping do you feel yeah. that you kind of experienced that and you know why why do you think that it's taken you know a pandemic for the fashion industry to go well okay maybe we need to kind of slow down and recognize our mental health I think partly because um you know the volume of you know we just got into this cycle that was driven by a need for consumerism mm. which drives so much of what it is that we do whether it's making clothes whether it's modeling clothes whether it's being you know part of content creation so producers photographers mm. sh you know shooting stuff the volume and, and the frequency at which we were having to create and you know continue to maintain was wasn't really in line with humans well-being you know it's just we weren't kind of operating in a way that gave anybody a moment to kind of take a breath and it just because it's such a like image focused industry everybody mm. wants to be seen to be busy everybody wants to be seen to be you know doing bigger and better projects each and every time and everybody wants to be seen to be improving on what they did last time and that in itself creates this internal anxiety that makes you know that creates this sort of unnatural drive and competitive nature mm. um which i certainly felt um you know i can only throughout this i should probably caveat this whole conversation by saying everything i'm about to say is only my own personal experience because yeah. i don't profess to have experienced anything that anybody else has but that's how i certainly felt and i think you know from reading about other people's experiences and how other people felt and just seeing other people's experiences firsthand as well it it does feel like that is a particular issue with the fashion industry mm. what so can you talk through kind of your struggles within the industry and the fast-paced life that you lived up because you kind of mm. had two different angles didn't you you were kind of shot to fame quite quickly with you know through I don't want to say not an overnight success but you know mm. you were in demand Definitely, I'm sure it young. felt like that from the outside yeah like oh it was very quick I was 23 years old um and um I was work as you know I was working in teen <laughs> magazines because that's, that's where yes uh, you won a Miss Bliss modeling competition <laughs> and I styled the shoes you um, did. So we've known. You were trying to get my mum to buy the clothes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, she needs all, these in her life. <laughs> always selling. And all, yeah, always selling. Um, and so I was doing that and I just made some t shirts as a. You know, there was no grand master plan, there was no strategic thought behind a single thing that I was doing. It was literally like, I want to wear a t shirt that looks like this to the nightclubs that I was going to at the time and I reckon so to some of my mates. So I'll make 20 of them and give them out and we'll all have, you know, it'll be a fun little project. That, explain you know, these t-shirts for anyone who's, I feel like yeah. everybody is aware, but you know, just well, explain they were, the slogans. They <laughs> were slogan t-shirts with very um, large, bold font uh, text on them. Uh, in sort of neon colours. It was kind of the new rave years that lasted about 90 seconds, thank God. And um, <laughs> and they had quite um, 
to the bone rhyming couplets on them that were very filled with sexual innuendo. So things like Do Me Daily, Christopher Bailey, You Who, Gareth Pugh, uh, Give Us a Tickle, Richard Nichol, uh, Get Your Free Con, Giles Deacon. They were the first few T-shirts that I did. Um, and then I expanded that and did rhyming couple, couplets about models' names. And then that's when we got to Flicky Bean for Agnes Dean. And... <laughs> Just really, you know, highbrow phrases like that. So um, I started with those T-shirts and they kind of, they just really struck a chord, I think, within the industry, which quickly quickly permeated out mm. um, and became kind of, they were, yeah, they were, we were selling globally within three months, which was Mad. kind of absolutely mental. Like, you know, I, I was Where never able shipping to... from kind of the fashion magazine houses where you were yeah. working at Team Ones down to like Dover Street Market and things like that. Yep. Just... <laughs> I would like wheel in these huge boxes of t-shirts and my editor would be like, what's that? And I'd be like, oh, it's nothing. It's just, you know, a few samples for a shoot. Meanwhile, <laughs> I had like a full pick and pack logistics center in the fashion cupboard, which I managed to conceal. Genius. Um, yeah, it was, it was a crazy time and really exciting, really fun, pre-social media. So I feel like there was a lot of pressures of today that weren't necessarily mm -hmm. around. Yeah. Um, and it was just super exciting. And I just got, um, I think that's where this hamster wheel began because I didn't intend or have this strategic plan uh, to make these t-shirts into a global thing. But then be as soon as I started to realize that there was an opportunity there that was bigger than what I'd originally perceived, I, my main goal in life then was grabbing hold of every single opportunity that came my way and mm -hmm. making it as big and as, you know, the best that I could. And that's kind of what I did for the next 13 years. So. Wow. And yeah. you were also around, you know, in, this, in, the, in that time as well, on, on the social scene heavily, which I also, from my experience, does impact mental health, because you're working to a capacity, and then you're also having to be out and be seen, and that yeah. kind of side of it, you know, how did you cope with both sides? Um, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I did like going out, so it was <laughs> um, No, I did, that was a huge part of it, and yeah. I think partly that was one of the reasons that my T-shirt and my business at that time resonated so well because it was authentic you know mm -hmm. it wasn't I was just going out with my mates and you know those mates were well known and so you know we were we were written about and it definitely helped my business but it was never a strategic play for me to mm -hmm. be like oh, I'm gonna go to this party and this party if I got invited to an exciting party then I, I would go and I would really enjoy that that side of it mm -hmm. but it massively impacts on your mental health in hindsight in terms of just yeah, burning the candle at both ends essentially. And you know, people don't realize that when you're running a business, all they see of you is you in at parties and at nightclubs and they assume that that means you sleep all day. Mm. Um, and it's the exact opposite. You know, you've got to get yourself out of bed and in the studio and you have to work to the same capacity during the day as you are doing at night and you know, Luckily, at 23, that's much easier than it is at 33. So, you know, I was able to to manage that to yeah. an extent and for, for, for a long period of time, yeah. Um, and then it became, 
kind of harder and harder. And I was less and less interested in that side of things. You know, I didn't feel like I needed that uh, gratification of being invited to everything and being at everything. You know, I felt much more comfortable in my own skin that I didn't need that side of things to make me feel like I, I don't know, belonged, I suppose, in that industry. Yeah. Because I, I, I did always have imposter complex because I didn't study fashion. So, yes, um, this is something I really want to talk to you about, actually, because I don't mm. really think many people. I think a lot of people suffer with imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, and no one talks about it. Well, I think because I, doing what I was doing, which was a complete shift in, you know, my training and mm. my education. Because you studied journalism, um, wasn't that? Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, I did a degree in journalism, which if you think about it, um, you know, the first thing I did was writing on clothes. So that mm. wasn't a huge, complete, you know, change yeah. in direction. It was a bit of a, a gradual uh, evolution but as well as me feeling that I also had you know every six months I would do shows and people would often make reference to the fact that I wasn't trained in reviews and so you know it was something that I felt like I had to overcome mm. and um, it wasn't until I'd been sort of in business for a few years where I started to feel like I deserved to be in that world to an extent because I'd kind of earned my stripes mm in more of I was much more comfortable being considered from a business perspective than I was a design perspective I think that was always something that I felt more comfortable with because I felt like you can prove that you know it's more tangible mm. whereas you know proving your worth in t in terms of creative fields it's subjective some people are going to like what you do some people hate it so mm. if you can turn around and be like you might not like it but it sells well then you know you, you even in your own health, like your own mental well-being and to the wider world, you can justify yourself to an extent. But also fashion is so individual anyway. You know, everybody has their own kind of creative stance on what they like to wear. And so I think, you know, that is probably up yeah, to every designer, form. isn't it's it? Like, yeah. You know, it's like there's artists that, you know, some of the biggest and greatest artists in the world have been you know exactly. torn to pieces for what they produce because it's about somebody's you know creative output is mm. not something that you can say is good or bad it is what it is and it's whether you How understand you it and whether you have a now. personal connection to that and whether you your taste level is is aligned so you know it's not necessarily something that you can say is right or wrong whereas in business you can kind of justify and say well you know I've built my company to this and you know now we, we do this and we do this and so that was always much more of a, a tangible thing to be able to prove yourself I guess. In business well you definitely did 100% I mean I remember, For a while yeah. Well you, know, you still have in my mm. eyes absolutely yeah. you know you're one of the one of the great fashion designers in the UK and I think you know with and I and I've and I believe that you are, even if you still, you've got imposter syndrome calling yourself that. Yeah. Um, but how did you get over the imposter syndrome? I mean, not that you ever really get over it, but how did you deal with that? How did you kind of deal with actually the, the beat downs or the comebacks from people that made you feel that you were less insignificant than you were? How did you deal with that? I think it was very gradual, if I'm honest. And I think mm. it was, you know, starting to feel a part of something. You know, mm. I think there was a lot... 
a lot of other designers, contrary to popular belief, I think, because there's this image that the fashion industry can be very bitchy and exclusive. And I think amongst other designers, there's a real sense of camaraderie. Mm, and, nice. there's a and there's a real level of respect because whether you like what someone does or you don't, as long as they're not a complete dickhead, mm -hmm. you, know, and they're, you know, they're nice people, mm -hmm. there's a real level of respect for each other because you understand the challenges and how difficult it is to run and manage a fashion brand and, mm -hmm. and how hard, you know, each other is working. Mm -hmm. So whether you appreciate someone's, like, output or not, you can there's that there's a real level of understanding and you know when you're when you're in an industry that can be as as small and insular as the fashion industry can be you're you're thrown together in so many different scenarios in so many different ways whether it be dinners or events or parties or whether it be you know fundraising things or you know there's so many scenarios in which you find yourselves in the same place and yeah. so you do get to know each other quite well and you do become friendly so I think it was more feeling like I'd been accepted on that level mm -hmm. and with you know amongst other designers and you know them becoming friends and you know working in collaboration and helping each other out and those kind of things which I, I definitely experienced I know that's not everybody's um, personal experience but mm -hmm. I did definitely feel like um, you know, I got a lot of help from other creatives, which really helped me feel more comfortable with myself. Mm. And yeah. how, how are you feeling now? Because obviously this year was a really sad year for, for House of Holland. After like 30 yeah. successful years, um, you ended the brand. Yeah. And how... Yeah, like it's a real, uh, it's a real mixture. You know, there's definite sadness, and mm. there's definite, um, um, you know, there's there's a lot of nostalgia mm. um, about looking back. But I'm so proud, and I'm so happy with everything that we did, and I had the best 13 years of my life. Mm. You know, it was such formative years for me, both just from 23 to 36. You mm. know, those are it's a huge formative part of your life. And I was doing some of the most exciting things that I could never have dreamed of doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful and I'm so appreciative of that. And I will always have House of Holland to thank for that. Um, and you know, however tough things got throughout that time. And you know, it was never a straightforward upward curve, that's for sure. So, you know, there was definitely times of hardship throughout and there was times of absolute, you know, complete celebration and, amazing exciting times so i mean i feel quite at peace with it i think mm -hmm. and i think you know given the state of the world and us being in lockdown and you know everything has changed yeah. so it's almost like i've been given a bit of permission to to kind of take a breath and think about that and and take a moment to acknowledge it and appreciate it because Otherwise, I think if the world was continuing at its regular pace, I would have this sort of internal anxiety that I needed to be launching a new project now. Mm. And, you know, I was I was behind in in doing so, whereas I feel much more comfortable in just sort of taking stock for a minute and, and having a think about what it is I want to do and how I want that to look, which, as I said at the beginning, I just don't think we've ever had the... The benefit of or, or the luxury of before no we never we never have and i think 
Jake, isn't that such a mad kind of statement to, to think about that actually mm. I'm allowing myself to, to stop? Mm. Whereas before you wouldn't have allowed it. Yeah. And how much that does impact your, I guess, burnout, mental health, yeah. brain fog, you know, when you're never stopping and taking a moment. And a moment you might think is, I don't know, a week, but actually you've been going at this pace for so long mm. that, you know, you need some time just to recalibrate. I don't think, I, and I, I definitely didn't realise how burnt out that I was by it. Mm. Sorry, that was terrible grammar. I don't I didn't realise how burnt out I was by the whole situation and running the business and you know, um until it stopped, until I took a moment because I and, and it was only then that you realise how much it it takes out of you and how mm. much and it gives you an opportunity to lift your head up and look at the other things in life and like what else you you've got and you've just yeah. never had that opportunity before. Um and there's a real there's a real challenge in working in any, any industry, I think, where your name is above the door. Mm -hmm. And I think in fashion in particular, when your name is on, you know, if your name, mine, I was, I feel quite fortunate. My name, my full name was never the brand name. Mm -hmm. um, but it was to an extent, you know, was, my surname was in there, but mm -hmm. there's a real difficult thing with um, separating your own self-worth mm -hmm. with the worth of a brand or a business because if a brand and a business isn't, you know, doing particularly well, it's very difficult to separate your own self-worth from that and not feel like your your self-worth is kind of, you know, not performing well. You know what I mean? So 100%. It's, it's so much pressure. Yeah. And so until that's gone, until you, like, you know, free yourself from that ongoing feeling, you don't realise that it's there, I don't mm. think. So... That's been interesting. And how, like, what's the transformation that you've seen kind of since you've stepped away? Like, what are the kind of positive effects that you've seen in your own self-worth and, I guess, self-judgment and self-esteem, everything? Yeah, I mean, that I'm definitely still in that. <laughs> I'm still like, <laughs> I still have good days and bad days. I still have good days where I feel like, you know, relief and a sense of calm and comfort in the fact that I'm able to just go about my life without necessarily people watching so much. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. at the same time, I feel often like I'm not necessarily achieving anything for the mm -hmm. same reasons. And so, um, yeah, to be brutally honest, I'm very much dealing with that at the moment. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an ongoing situation where, it, I, and I think for me, it's really about just having that goal Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think I'm, I'm starting to approach being ready for a new project, something to get my teeth into. Like for the last almost 15 years, I, my main goal was always just to make House of Holland as big and as best as it, it could possibly be. Mm -hmm. And everything I did was about that. Yeah. So whether that was about, you know, making sure I filed the tax return correctly or making sure I signed a contract on this project or that project to make sure that we were funding the business appropriately or whether I was able to, you know, I was going out trying to get investment or whatever it was, everything I was doing from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep was trying to make uh, House of Holland the best that it could be. Mm. And when you remove that sort of end far reaching ultimate goal, you, you can feel a little bit rudderless you know yeah. I've still got projects going on and you know there's things happening and I'm working and you know I'm really fortunate in that respect mm. but 
not having that kind of end folk you know that sort of really far yeah. reaching goal yeah is it's it's an adjustment and it's something that you have to kind of learn and to figure out do you feel like it's a healthy adjustment do you maybe feel like looking back on that and how you're explaining it is maybe wasn't maybe the healthiest way potentially yeah mm. i mean again i'm kind of in two minds with it i'm a gemini i think that's my problem i'm in two <laughs> ah, minds with everything okay. <laughs> i'm in two minds with everything. A gemini. yeah um i'm kind of like i i do i did appreciate having that end goal and i do and i do feel like i need one now that but isn't just like end goal was an end goal because i thought that you'd always keep going well then we've got to do this and then we've got to achieve this there never would be an end goal. Oh, there never would be an end goal, no. Yeah. Like, unless, you know, I, I don't, and I don't think that there ever should be. I think, you mm. know, you're always striving to make it bigger and better or you're always striving to be the best that you can be. Yeah. Um, but when that's within the structure of trying to make something the best that it can be, mm. um, you know, and now when you're, and there's also, you know, removing that element of community. You know, I don't have a team around me anymore. I don't mm -hmm. work with people day in, day out. That, you know, that there was a, that was a real exciting thing for me about House of Holland. It was the biggest privilege about running your own business was choosing who you got to run it with. Yeah. You know, the team that I worked with were my family and they still are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I still see them and speak to them. But I miss that. Yeah. You know, I miss working to that end goal together and having that common goal. So... Yeah, because you had so many of your like good friends working for you. I, mean, I remember Jess; mm, he was yeah. my agent, and then she yeah. left and worked with you. <laughs> yeah, I stole her. Yeah, you stole her from me. Yeah, um, you, and that's and such I did... a big important part because I don't think I think the fashion industry is uh, from being in it is also it's very small. You do know everybody, but also it's very fragmented at the same time. So yeah. you had such a strong force within your work because it was your actual friends. Yeah, and it's also all encompassing. Yeah. So, you know, you're living and breathing it. It's not really just a job. And yeah. so it's really important that you like the people that you're doing that with. And it's quite common, actually. Like, you know, Christopher Kane works with his sister, Tammy. Erdem works with his sister. You know, there's there's a lot of families that work together mm. in this industry. And, you know, and whether you start out as best friends, you definitely become that. And so my approach at the beginning was who's my best friend in the whole world let's go and do this together mm. and that was how you know I approached a lot of my recruitment <laughs> I yeah. you know I had good well, friends even Agnes I... was your model wasn't she Agnes yeah. Dean who again was at the same agency as I was with and I yeah. kind of remember that whole period of you guys working together and yeah and that was you know that was that was again a huge benefit because we were going through this crazy adjustment mm. you know where you know, our lives were kind of being flipped on their head, but we were able to do it with somebody who we were comfortable with and we knew properly. You know, it wasn't just like, you know, air quotes, fashion friends. We were real friends from, you know, growing up together in the same town and we'd known each other for, by that point, we'd known each other for, you know, almost 10 years. So, yeah, that's so important, especially for a lot of models as well. Because yeah. you could obviously see the strains. We were talking about this before we came on, weren't we? About mm. the stress and the strains of the fashion industry as well as on models. You know, mm. as a designer, did you ever kind of, from being, you know, having your best friend as a model, Agnes Dean, mm. did 
did you ever kind of were you aware of models mental health when you were working with them and like shows and on sets and that kind of thing like how did you approach that as a designer yeah i was always really sensitive about it because um you know when agnes was for agnes was a big name and you know we, we were living together and she was sort of pounding the pavement with an a to z it was before mm-hmm. um before satnav and so <laughs> and you know i just i think I always, always felt the utmost respect for the models because they were always the hardest working members of any team around Fashion Week because this huge show that we were putting on, we were doing two a year and these girls sometimes were doing six in a day. Mm. And, you know, it's, you're getting poked and prodded and pulled in so many different directions. You're doing castings and fittings till 2am and your first call time for a show is six and you're expected to look blemish-free, gorgeous, happy and fresh. Mm. And then also just, I think, for any human being, the frequency of rejection is just unnatural. Yeah. And I, and I saw that firsthand. You know, some days you will have 10 castings a day mm. and and you might not get one of those jobs. And mm. so imagine for a second being rejected based like predominantly on your physical appearance mm. 10 times in one day. Yeah. And how are you supposed to navigate that as any human being? And then factor in the fact, factor in that these are impressionable, you know, young girls who are, you know, susceptible to so many other issues around, you know, com- mm-hmm. self-confidence and self-esteem. And I, it's, you know, it's crazy. I mean, I, I think it's good. And that's why I think what you're doing is so important. And Thank you. I think that, you know, it's, it's something that the industry is starting to become more aware of. But at the beginning of me starting out 13 mm-hmm. years ago, you know, girls were treated as commodities and, mm-hmm. you know, as products. And, you know, you were flown here, there and everywhere because the job dictated it. And there was no real kind of question about, you know, what what's your jet lag going to be like or what's mm-hmm. your time zone or, you know, how the frequency. And beca- and it's, it sort of goes back to this hamster wheel again because people are so... And I think it's driven a lot by fear. People are scared mm-hmm. that this is their moment and they have to take advantage of every opportunity to its absolute peak because, you know, there's a chance that it could go away tomorrow. Yeah. Um, and that fickleness generates that sense of fear. So I think, yeah, the, the models I was always super sensitive around, tried to make sure that they really enjoyed coming in to see us, mm. tried to make sure that our shows were, you know, the best show of the day for them, that they remembered that they wanted to come back and do the show again. Mm. Because we would often, you know, we, we weren't a big house that paid big money, so we would often get some big name girls maybe as they were on their way up in industry mm. and you know it was kind of and and then it was sort of testament that a lot of them would want to come back and do the show because they had fun doing it and they really enjoyed the whole process you know we used to try and make it really fun mm. and always really respectful yeah yeah that's so important i mean do you feel there's still stigma attached in, in the fashion industry with mental health um, I don't, I think, I think society in general has made a real point of talking about mental health a lot more, which I think mm. is, you know, there's definitely been positive changes, 100%. Yeah. Um, and in the fashion industry has definitely taken that on board. I don't yet think that it's taken 
as much responsibility as it could. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that Fran Burns' post a few months ago about samples being too small, I mm-hmm. don't know if you, you've covered that much, but yeah. I found that really interesting and it really did strike a chord with me because I it did make me question, you know, we'd, we'd had, we've had situations like that um, where you know something has been made and for one reason or another it's come up really small you know mm-hmm. whether we've we've used an, a different fit model and she had a much smaller hip than the girl that's come in or mm-hmm. you know women's bodies are a different shape mm-hmm. and whilst as an industry they talk about a standardized sample size like no women's bodies are standardized and so on that topic of trying my best to kind of be respectful of the girls if anything was particular was was smaller than average or whatever i would always make a point before a girl tried it on just to be like these have been made wrong mm. there's a chance they'll come up super small and if they do please don't worry it's not your fault yeah. because i did have you know agnes had stories where she would go for castings and the clothes wouldn't fit and she would come away so dejected and just say well i obviously didn't get that job yeah mm. and and I would look at her and she, you know, she had an amazing figure and she was tiny and she, you know, she was, she had a model figure. And so mm. it would all, so I, that was kind of a hangover for me. Mm. To really see it. And it's, it's nice to hear that because I still do think, um, you know, it is still a massive, a massive problem. And I also think there's a lot of problems of people just not being aware that these are actually human beings. Mm. it's not actually just to like go actually your how is your mental health and actually this is going to really affect you you know because mm. it's not just that one designer it's the constant yeah. amount of shows or the constant amount of fittings yeah um or maybe you just you know you have you have more water retention that day or whatever mm. you kind of you, you, you're like a sponge you just every mm. comment sticks with you yeah and it is really hard and i think it's especially harder at the moment as well where there isn't you know, when you're in lockdown for a lot of these yeah. young girls. And I think that's what really drove me to start the Be Well, actually, was from being being a model living in New York and kind of seeing the constant rejection, or well, being in it as well. But I think yeah. in New York, it was it's even more emphasized. I don't know why. New York just mm. seems to be 100 million miles per hour, yeah. um, more so than London. And yeah. I do think that you know there is still a lot there has been a lot of movement though from from when i first started be well to now seeing how many people are actually wanting to come on and talk about mental health and are taking kind of appropriate measures to support young men and women's mental health but i do still feel there's a massive stigma of of drumming it down because it's just not cool you know when i started studying nutrition everyone's a bit like why would you why would you study that? And I was a bit like, well, I'm really interested in it. Why it wouldn't was, I? Yeah, yeah, why wouldn't I? But it was so uncool. Like, no, no one, yeah. no one studied nutrition. No one, you know, how you eat and what you eat was just not connected to how you looked. It was more about just eating less and doing more. Yeah. Um, but now I do feel that people are more aware of actually what you are eating. You know, how did, did you ever kind of look at, eating well for your mood or was it just kind of constantly going on the run because when I was you know modeling full-time I never really Mm. was associating food and mood together yeah um that's definitely something that I've come to understand more recently but um yeah I was just I would do 
I mean, I would do crazy diets around Fashion Week. For some reason, I would think that I needed to be thinner because I was Fashion Week. It's like, no one's looking at you. You're not but wearing you're, any clothes. But that doesn't make, that isn't mad to me because you're literally surrounded in that industry. Yeah. And, you know, it is something that, like, you know, the industry could have been, can be quite guilty of talking about more than usual. Mm. Um, more than others because it's so driven by physical appearance. Huge. Um, but about... Um, about two years ago, I about two and a half years ago, I kind of I started one of those like full on sort of twelve week body transformation things at a gym, and then you know it was the whole program was hugely connected to diet. Mm. You know, it wasn't just about going to the gym and kind of doing more cardio, which is what I'd always kind of like you said, eat less, move more, kind of yes. thing. And it and that completely changed my concept of food and also my alcohol intake as well, mm-hmm. because as part of that I, I stopped drinking for a, a sort of for the first time for an elongated period of time. I think I did like ten weeks of not drinking, and the the way that that sort of changed my mood was a huge eye opener. Really? Yeah. And do you still stick by any of that now? Yeah, yeah. I'm still at the gym. Like I, start, I signed up for 12 weeks and I'm still there two years later because Amazing. I go I go three times a week and it's as much for my mental health as it is my physical health. I go through periods where I'm more strict with my diet and where I'm less strict with my diet, but getting up and meeting an appointment with a trainer three times a week, it just, I do it, I do it in the mornings always because it's just such the best start to my day in terms of motivation accountability there's so many things tied into it and um, do you feel this is a much more healthy approach now because as you said but then you just restrict your food and be like well actually i just want to lose loads of weight really quickly which yeah i did that beyonce way. i did that beyonce lemon juice oh my and cayenne pepper thing once oh my and God. I, and you i must was have like been horrific to be around <laughs> do you know what i was actually i was like i was on some sort of amphetamine i was so <laughs> hyper because i was obviously living exclusively off adrenaline yeah well your body's in fight or flight at that point yeah Mm. and then and then it was like and then it was like gradually introduce raw like monge too and i was like okay (laughs) that is so specific and i did it around fashion week as well when i was like operating in this crazy frequency and then i think after fashion week i spent a week in bed i was exhausted so your body's you know yeah you just don't you don't think I think that's more an age thing as well. You kind of, you don't think as logically mm. as a young person. You, you know, you're very much like, I'm going to live forever. I don't really need to think about my my overall health. Mm. Um, and so, also you're but, in such an adrenaline kind of yeah. pushing industry at that point. You, you end yeah. up living on adrenaline and not on, you know, food. Your body doesn't run on food. Your body runs on stress hormones. Yeah. Which is terrible for uh, building up fat around your stomach. The I now know. Worst. I love that you know that. Yeah, it's the worst. It's the worst. It is. And caffeine. So. Yeah, absolutely. And the more, the less that you eat, the more, the more you end up putting on because your body thinks it's going into starvation mode. Yeah. So these exactly. kind of, you know, I mean, the maple syrup. Is it maple syrup? What's the Beyonce diet? Is it, yeah, is it... maple syrup. Um, we shouldn't call it Beyonce diet. We'll probably that. get sued. But she apparently did it for Dream Girls. I mean, but that to me as a nutritionist, I mean, even before being a nutritionist, I would have, yeah, it's mad. But even now knowing the effect that that has on your body, and actually that creates more fat storage. Yeah. 
yeah, and crazy. your anxiety and your mood must have just been up and down yeah. constantly. Yeah. But now yeah. you've done a full 180. Now you're yeah. How's your nutrition now? Yeah, it's good. Like I follow like a plan. Well, I know it's been good this week. I just have to put that in there. Yes, it has. I've had a delicious <laughs> delivery from Be Well. I had a very delicious uh, sort of, um, was it cayenne pepper or paprika dusted salmon? Yes, it was. Yes. Both, yeah. Both, yeah. Um, on a bed of quinoa. Was it quinoa? The quinoa, yeah, with lots yeah. of vegetables in. Delish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, yeah, I am much more aware of my nutrition now because I'm aware of my fitness goals and the connect I make that connection Mm. um and so I know how you know I know now that my if I have a certain fitness goal that 80% of reaching that goal is in nutrition yeah I mean you could go to the gym seven days a week and eat burgers and never reach the goal you want to get to Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. I just wish someone had told me that 10 years ago (laughs) (laughs) oh if I was studying nutrition earlier I would have told you (laughs) yeah Okay. <laughs> but any nutrition advice now you can just whatsapp me oh yeah okay amazing Thanks. yeah that's what you can do yeah. on how yeah, this is being recorded as well i've got proof <laughs> yeah exactly um and something else i really wanted to speak to you about just because mm. you know being a man yeah and men's mental health is something that we're really kind of working on at be well kind of really getting men to speak out and to not feel yeah. the stigma that so many men do feel. And I think, you know, when we started Be Well, mm. originally, because um, now all the London modelling agencies, well, actually, UK modelling agencies are signed up to Be Well. Yeah. But I remember when I started it, you know, and predominantly everyone was like, oh, it's, you know, really going to help the female models. And it was all kind of really geared towards the female models. And I think probably yeah. that's because I was a female model. Um, And two, there's all, you know, whenever you read a press or a story or a headline about the modelling industry, it's normally about a female young model. Um, Yet, over the, you know, the last few years, I'm like, why do men seem to never be approached in the same way? Why are the agents quite not as susceptible to pushing men forward because they feel that the women might need it more? Mm. Um, And that really upset me. And we've been doing a huge drive with male models in the last year and realising more and more just how needed it is for men's mental health. And also young creatives, you know, we've got fashion illustrators that are very young that are, are, you know, that we look after at the Be Well. It's it's not just models now, it's kind of everybody within the creative industry. And we've got Gary Barlow, who's also in the creative industry, not obviously fashion, but music speaking yeah. up for the BWA about his bulimia. Um, yeah. And then Freddie Flintoff last week, you kind of yeah. saw him speak about it. And then I was interviewing Jodie Kidd last week and she said, you know how her partner's now speaking up about mm. mental health. And, you know, why do you think there's, from being a man, like me asking you as a woman to a man, why do you think mm. it is so much harder and there's so much more stigma attached to men's wow. health and speaking up about it? Well, I think the main issue is that it's just ingrained culturally. You know, there's this whole concept been a lot of talk about this whole concept of manning up which has you know now been used as it's been flipped on its head really and people have pointed out that actually manning up and being brave to talk about it is actually the legitimate you know uh definition of manning up really is being brave enough and bold enough to talk about these things yeah but i think that's just something that's kind of ingrained in our culture i mean 
being gay, I guess I would feel slightly if someone ever told me to man up, I'd laugh in their face and be like, <laughs> "Get go away." Yeah, I'm much, I'm very comfortable not manning up. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, but still, in certain terms, in terms of kind of, you know, um, in a in a career sense and a business sense and in all those other things, I always felt like really driven to profess to be in control mm. um and i think you know whether we whether we acknowledge it or not whether it's conscious or subconscious there is this thing ingrained in our society and and kind of the thoughts around that is is that men are less susceptible to these kind of things which is complete bullshit isn't it and i think um i was do you really think there's a difference between gay men and straight men about talking about yeah. their mental health? I don't think so. No, I think um, I just I think that there's kind of I, like it's I don't know if it's, it's just me, but whether it's seen as like it's a bit feminine to talk about your mental health, or like you know whether there's a as a kind of there's a pushback from straight guys to you know oh you know the man up thing is much mm. more kind of associated with straight men. I don't know. I don't even mm. know what I'm saying with that. But I do, but I think that's maybe a subconscious thing. But I was always super fortunate. You know, my upbringing was always about kind of, you know, focused on, you know, thoughts become actions, you know, like be very focused on what it is you want and focus on that and always focusing on positive thoughts. And yeah, because your mum was a huge believer, wasn't she? in positive yeah. thinking. She wrote a book on it. Yes, she did. Yeah. Which, um, how incredible to have that as your mum growing up. Yeah, and you just don't think about, but like as you're growing up, you think it's embarrassing, and you're like, "Oh, mum, can you stop telling me to do affirmations? That's really embarrassing." Mm-hmm. And then as an adult, you're so grateful. It's the kind of things that you realise that you know are just ingrained in your belief system that have been hugely beneficial to you. Which at the time you're like, "Oh my god, this makes me different to my friends at school. Can you stop it?" Because I think anyone growing up, anything that makes you different, you're just like, don't do that. Yeah. Um, I'd have loved if my mum told me to do affirmations. Yes. Yeah. I'm a huge so, believer in that. I mean, maybe I wouldn't be when I was 13. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I am now, and I, I and, and now I tell all of my friends what to, how to do it. And I'm like, you know, you've got to go and cosmically order this, and you've got to do this, and everyone's oh, what like, do you have to do? Well, well, cosmically ordering is kind of, it's more of a... It, more of a physical representation often of an affirmation so it's you know when people write on new year's eve people will write what they want for the year and burn it in a bucket you know yeah. kind of this sort of like version of it but mm. noel edmonds has written a book on cosmic ordering and really? he's a huge yeah and he's a big um believer in it and he he you know his career was kind of dead and buried and he cosmically ordered um what's that show with the boxes Deal or, no uh, deal. Deal, or no deal. deal or no deal. Yeah. Yeah. And he and he write and he's written quite a lot about cosmically ordering deal or no deal and how it kind of turned his life around and got him back on TV and those kind of things. But cosmically ordering is kind of is um, sort of consciously asking for what it is you want and need from the universe. Um, and a huge part of cosmic ordering is acknowledging and being and doing gratitude when you when it happens for you Mm. so it kind of makes you accountable for these things that you ask for and makes you realize how powerful a 
uh, a process it can be. You know, if you cosmically order something and then a few months later you realize that thing you cosmically ordered happened, it's really important that you do the gratitude side and you sort of, you know, in, just in your head, you just thank the universe or whatever it is. It sounds very kind of airy-fairy. But there's, you know, there's ways that you can do it. You can write it down as a list in your diary, in your notebook. Like, here's a list of things I want to achieve this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that can be a manifestation um, just as much. Day. Yeah, you can say it every day. It's just however works for you. I think that's what's really good about the whole process is some people write, I mean, you know, my mum's got examples of this, but some people will write a letter, address, put it in an envelope, address it to the universe, no this. stamp. You put it in the post box, and it's basically like writing a letter to Father Christmas, right? And then you, and then you sit and you you don't sit and wait. You obviously get on and you go about trying to make those affirmations and manifestations happen. That's so interesting because um, I went to this uh, place called the Body Camp in, in Ibiza. I've been there. They're oh, amazing. aren't they amazing? They did they did it where they said you have to write a letter to yourself in six months' time, and we post it to you. And it's yeah. about everything you wanted to achieve and about your manifestations. Yeah. And in six months down the line, I received my letter and I was like, right, what have I done? What haven't I done? And you had know? you done loads? I had. Yeah. I'd done most of it, which I was really surprised about. Often just writing something down gives you that focus and like gives you, you know, it's like a checklist. And mm. that checklist can be, my mum's other thing that she always taught me when I was growing up was whenever you write a list, a to-do list, the first two things should already be done. Yes. And I love that. It's one of my favorite things that I do because you, a, 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 a to-do list with not one tick against it is quite intimidating. Yeah. Whereas a to-do list where the first two things are already achieved, it it it's a psychological thing, but it really helps. God, that's makes a really it, good point. Makes it much less daunting. Yeah. Yeah. So today my to-do though? list is get dog shit off the dog. <laughs> And I've already done that. <laughs> I was halfway through interrupting you and like, hey, you're like, I'm really sorry I've had this awful morning. So sorry. Oh, bless him. Is he, is he still looking the other way in the corner? Yeah, she's now by the radiator, so she should oh, be she... happy in it. Oh, yeah. bless her. Um, please do send me a picture I really want to see. Um, I will. <laughs> and so lastly, what yeah. is, well, two things really. What's kind of next for, for, for you? Hmm. Um, I don't know. And I think that's, that's I think such a that's great answer. What, yeah. That's what I'm I'm getting to grips with, you know, it's that thing of not having that end goal for the moment. Mm-hmm. Um I'm getting to the point, as I said, that you know, I'm ready for a new project and I'm just starting to formulate ideas of what that looks like and I'm kind of taking the time to make sure that I'm folk you know, formulating what the end goal is. Mm. before going out and starting to try and achieve it and so I'm at that point at the moment but yeah it's and it's also such a crazy time to kind of go out into the world and be like I'm doing something new and everyone's (laughs) like great the world's on complete contraction maybe you should just chill out for a bit so yeah it's It's true well I watched Social Dilemma this weekend and that completely threw me and I was like do I need to come off social media for life like do you know what it is really good for and what it really helped me with was acknowledging my behavior so when I do get a notification on my phone now I'll make a point well yeah I mean that's obviously you know the best thing to do I mean the only notifications I have now is all the news yeah. I don't know why. Don't know why. Cause never good, is it? Never good news. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I do think, like, I watched that this weekend and I was now thinking, oh my gosh, am I meant to delete my social media account? But it's quite, it's my, it's my work. So yeah. how do you get around it, that one? It is interesting with, for Be Well as well, because when, like, when I started House Phone, social media wasn't a thing. Mm. Um, and it was sort of four years in, 2010 was really when Instagram took off. Mm. And how that has affected my on my mental health and also affected the industry mm. hugely because not only are you know models and young creatives in the industry now subject to kind of um you know this ongoing rejection and judgment but you've got that now on a global scale mm-hmm. you know you've got that kind of uh level of judgment and um yeah, people people looking at you and commenting on, on what you're doing and and that need for gratification with like a like button mm. it's it's crazy how that's um you know elevated that situation oh hugely and also you know people wanting to get surgery for snapchat filters i just think it's so worrying i do feel like that the pressures of models are now kind of within the full nation yeah yeah, it's um, it's it's definitely changed things. That's for sure. Mm. No, it really has. Well, and like for the good and for the bad. Yeah. You know, you you now as you know, from my perspective as a, as a brand owner, like you've got a global audience that you're able to interact with, get real time feedback on. It's made people, and I think one of the positives, especially in the last twelve months, given you know the whole Black Lives Matter and the whole mm-hmm. you know human rights movement that we're in the midst of it's made people way more accountable to their actions and it's given their customers and their community an opportunity to give them feedback in when they're not you know of doing course. things in a yeah when they're not being doing things in the right way and you know they're demanding that brands are more inclusive and they're demanding that brands are more diverse mm. and when i first started because the industry was almost kind of controlling itself in that respect mm-hmm. um you know, nobody was listening to those voices. And so I think there is positives that have come from it, for sure. Yeah, no, I completely, yeah. yeah, I do, I really agree with that comment. It's become a two-way conversation. You know, yes. it used to be about, you would you would go out and try and get press, which was always positive. You would always be trying to get positive press. Mm-hmm. And then that would go out in a print publication with zero opportunity for feedback. People might read it in their living room and sit there and bitch about you for an hour and a half, but now they can tell you to your face or your inbox. <laughs> Um, into your DMs that, yeah into your DMs that you know that they disagree with you or that they feel like you know you need to be looking at certain things in a different way and that you need to be open to you know wider ideas and so that's yeah. definitely a positive but yeah it's, yeah I mean I definitely think brands are having to listen now on the fact of not just the mental health side but the sustainability side and the ethical side and also as you said the diversity side I mean there's so many yeah there's so many topics that I think 2020 has brought to the surface which have been needed to be brought to the surface for a long time yeah. because people have got a moment to think about what matters to them i think yeah well mm. absolutely and i do think you know this this whole year has given brands a lot more time to, to think about what's really important for them going forward yeah. yeah so what does live well be well mean to you or be well i like to say to most people what does be well mean to you um i think be well to me means um it's it's a it's an all-encompassing, it's a physical and mental uh, well-being for me because they're so intertwined. Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm not 
feeling healthy and fit and kind of you know exercise for me has always been a real release you know mm-hmm. at the when i was at the most stressful times of my business i used to go to like crazy boot camp classes and my trainer would always be like why do you do that to yourself and i was like because i need 40 minutes in my day when all i can think about is breathing yes <laughs> because it's the only time yeah it's the only time that i'm not you know asleep that my brain is able to switch on to something else mm-hmm. um and it's it's a it's that they're, they're so intertwined for me physical and mental well-being so um yeah it's kind of it's being aware and listening to your to your mind body and soul i guess yeah i completely agree with that and, instead of and supporting of, all three yes exactly so you're listening to the signals mm. completely yeah. agree with you great oh. well that was good then could have been... <laughs> how could you not agree with that even though i kind of you know preach and not preach i talk about a lot of kind of the importance of this yeah. Even myself, I don't always stick to it. You know, I'm kind of, no, I've got, you know, however, however much I've got to do in my day. And sometimes yeah. everybody's just like, Sarah, stop, slow down. And I'm like, no, another coffee. And actually, well, it's I just do, I do so think true. a huge part of it and a huge part of what's happening at the moment with the lockdown is just acknowledging to give yourself a break. Yeah. You know, there's like so many people are just sort of, finding a better balance in life mm. because they're realizing that things are pretty tough out there excuse me sorry <laughs> things are pretty <laughs> things are pretty tough out there and and you know it's important to yes yeah, strive to, to to keep going and push forward but also just acknowledge when it's okay not to do that completely completely mm. agree and that's exactly what you know you're finding yourself at the moment just giving yourself some time which i just think mm. is brilliant and it's the best thing you can do for your mental and physical well-being yeah and also your little dog must love having you around yeah i know i'm a bit worried about when uh if i do go back to... i mean she always came to the office with me anyway well so she's, she's always, always allowed at the BUL office it's dog friendly okay okay great good to know <laughs> is that a job offer <laughs> you can definitely come and work at the BUL anytime great. you want okay great <laughs> Oh, Henry, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it and speaking to Henry. It's fantastic to hear men speaking up about their mental health and the importance of it. If you're listening to this episode and you enjoyed it, please do share it with your friends and your family. Sharing knowledge is gaining knowledge and that is so important. It's what we strive to do here at Live Well, Be Well. This episode might help somebody that you know is struggling with their mental health or it might just help increase awareness of this podcast for others. If you did enjoy it, please do leave a five-star rating. I love seeing that you're enjoying it and hoping to create the same content again for you guys, knowing that it's what you like to hear about. If you haven't yet signed up to the Great British Veg Off, please do. I've created an e-booklet for you all of a 30-day challenge to help increase your veggies with weekly shopping lists and nutritional goodness, all available from my website, sarahannmacklin.com. And until next time, I hope you all live well and be well. Thank <laughs> you.
Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.